lot of people said it couldn't be done, and we wouldn't be back for more. But what they actually meant was that it wouldn't be done because of general inertia, laziness, and my mild addiction to these gluten-free crackers I found. But what they didn't count on was my borderline dangerous, you think you're better than me mentality and mildly competent editing skills. I'm Jeff Wallenitz, and this is OK Sounds. Amy Shearn is the author of the critically acclaimed novels How Far Is the Ocean and The Mermaid of Brooklyn. But far more importantly, she's an old friend and a former contributor to this podcaster's erstwhile fiction website, Yankee Pot Roast, which was itself critically acclaimed, though those critics choose not to reveal themselves. Amy's new novel, Unseen City, will be out on September 29th. Please enjoy our conversation. Okay, so welcome everyone to episode 14, the season premiere, second season premiere of Okay, So. My name is Jeff Wallenitz, and I'm your guide through this wild journey that we're about to go on for the next 45 minutes. With me today is Amy Shern. Amy, welcome. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh my God, it, the pleasure is mine. Um, so tell me, how are you? How are you surviving the world right now? Ooh, I didn't realize you were going to start off with like a hard hitting question. I thought we were going to ease in. So well, this is, it, there's nothing it's, but hard hitting questions on this. So, okay. All right. Well, let's get into it, man. I'm doing fine. I'm <laughs> fine. You know, fine. Like, I feel like I uh, shouldn't complain because the sort of pandemic life has been so much worse for so many other people. And, you know, it's not right. I work from home. I have the book coming out, which is like weird and feels kind of awesome and kind of dumb. And, you know, things have been good. I haven't gotten sick, knock on wood. Like so far, so good. I'm yeah, like a fine. little, fi I'm like pandemic fine. I'm yeah. pandemic great. <laughs> fine seems to be the word that everybody right. uses whenever you ask them fine how they are. They're the like, new, yeah. fine is the new thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's I'm right. like a little rattled today because I was setting up my kids' Google Classrooms, which, you know, it went okay. Then I'm drinking already, so it's fine. We're fine. Listen, you got to do, especially to get to that online teaching stuff, you have to do literally anything you possibly can to get through it. And my kids' school is actually used... It's Google Classroom, I think, is like the focal point, mm -hmm. but a bunch of the different video services plug into it. So sometimes no. it's Zoom and sometimes it's something else. And for a while it was like they shifted because Zoom was unsafe. I'm hearing oh, like, right, right, right. I'm hearing right. stories about like there being like pornographic <laughs> bombs for one for first graders. And I'm like, I, I just I don't know how easy this is going to be. Yeah. I feel like that was an urban legend. I don't know. Did that really happen? A friend of like, mine texted me and told me that she got a text from one of her friends who was like the nine-year-old in the class, full-on hardcore pornography, and the mom had no. to sit down and have a conversation, <laughs> like have the conversation with the kid. Like imagine um, how no. that precipitate. Like it's one thing to be like the right. birds and the bees and everything's fine, but sure. this this person saw like a hardcore image of, of what right. it is, this child. You know what? It's so many uh teachable moments. It's just it's just beautiful where the kids are learning about everything all at once. Yeah, I guess uh, that's what you have to like, call it a teachable moment. <laughs> Logins, passwords, hardcore porn. I mean, 
you know, they're, they're modern kids. I'm sure they're well, fine. I, mean, I guess if we're growing up in 2020, you've got to wrap your head around a whole bunch of things. You just got to get it all done at once. <laughs> totally. Let's get into it. Yeah. Yeah. So you live in New York now, but mm. you grew up in Chicago. So tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up in Chicagoland. Well, yeah, I got to say real quick, because anyone from Chicago will be like, uh-uh, we can <laughs> sniff her out <laughs> from the suburbs. <laughs> and like, I don't know if New Yorkers are as as fussy about this, because I don't talk to suburban New Yorkers. No, I just don't know. But I feel like people from Chicago will be like, yeah, you're from Chicago? Or and I'm like, I'm from the suburbs. I'm from the North Shore. Like, you get it. Wait, are, are you are you from Chicagoland? Where are you I'm from? I'm not from Chicagoland. I am one of those suburban New Yorkers who pretends to be New York. Oh, and then when people God. say, where are you from? I say New York. And <gasps> of course, now- How dare you? I know. I know. Well, you know, in my defense, I snuck here literally every moment I could possibly get. Uh, well, same. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I was like, I'm going to take this city bus into Chicago, the city, and like- you know, go to a coffee shop and play chess with an old man. And like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's right. I feel like, I feel like you have a slightly Chicagoland vibe. And I mean that in a good way. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. No, I think <laughs> in the Midwest a lot. I will tell you that. Really? Um, no, that is, that is usually, <laughs> I usually get, um, let me guess, New York too? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I get a lot of that. I um had a great conversation with a mom at my kid's school uh, semi-recently where we were talking about people from the Midwest and she was like, people from the Midwest are so nice. And I was like, they really are. They're so nice. You know, I'm actually from the Midwest. And she kind of paused and said, oh, I would not have thought that. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, uh, thank you, I guess, but okay. All right. It's just rude enough that people believe people could believe I'm from a New York suburb. The um, thing is, though, sneaking yeah. into a city, you're roughly my age, I think. So, so sneak, I might be a little older than you, but sneaking mm-hmm. into the city at the time I that I snuck into the city um, yeah. was not at all safe. That was not yeah, a safe probably. thing to be doing. <laughs> it was very dangerous in New yeah, York. Yeah, like 90s Chicago is probably not like the best jam. Yeah, I, uh, maybe, maybe this is an experience you can relate to. Uh, circa like 1995, I um, went to Israel on a, a Jewish kid teen tour and all the kids, you know, from Chicagoland were like, oh my God, you're going to Israel. You know, 1995 Israel was like no joke. And like, oh, you, there's suicide bombings and it's so scary there. And I got there and the Israeli kids were like, you're from Chicago. We've heard about Chicago. That It's so scary, right? It's just drive-by shootings. And I was like, mm. No. Yeah, totally. No, I find that no. um, when you live in the place, <laughs> yeah, no. you know, you tend to see past all of the warts of the place. Right. Um, so those guys, uh, I have friends who live in Tel Aviv and, you know, not really that often. Oh, anymore, but occasionally, so Jewish. Super Jewish. I feel like you just <laughs> over Jewed me. Fine. Go ahead. You, you'll have your opportunity. Fine. Okay. <laughs> But every time there's a bus bombing over there, I'm like, are you guys okay? Yeah. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we read about it in the paper also. We don't Exactly. We don't well, right. It's like being in New York throughout the pandemic. I feel like, especially in March and April, I was getting all these messages from people that are like, are you okay? Is it a war zone there? And I was like, I'm in my living room all the time. That's right. On the rare occasion, I have to venture out to Trader Joe's. 
Uh, exactly right. Yeah. That's, that's when I see it in real time, when I have to wait an hour to get in the store, other than that. Exactly. We did like, there were a lot, you could hear a lot of sirens, but that was sort of the extent of personal trauma. And so, what did your parents do when you were growing up? What did my parents do? What an interesting question. Right? I'm, I'm like... trying to get at a certain thing, which I'll tie it back to in a little bit. So, this is. I feel like we're at like a, a Jane Austen, like, <laughs> party like you're like and who are your people i'm gonna have to change out of this v-neck t-shirt i've been wearing for 36 hours if we're doing jane austen things yeah um gotcha um well i did notice i was looking at your podcast and i was like okay the people on this podcast are important people in business things like most of the job titles of people i don't actually even know what they are so i don't even know how i'm here i'm i'm barely hanging in here anyway Interesting people across all swaths of life, Amy. There you go. There you go. And also me. Um, <laughs> well, look, you hosted it. me at Lit at Lark all those years ago. Oh, my God, that's so fun. Yeah. I just want to talk about Yankee Pot Roast, but I, we're, I, we're I bet get we'll, get yeah, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> my parents, you know, my parents, they're so funny. I posted a picture recently in a coworker of mine slacked me and said, excuse me, your parents are cool? And I was like, no, 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 no. You misunderstand. <laughs> Just kidding. They're cool. They were like hippies who met in, in California in the 70s. And then we're like, oh, hey, you know what would be totally radical to do would be to like get married and move to the Midwest because like nobody does that. That'd be so crazy. And then, you know, we were, ended up in this very sort of staid Midwestern suburb and I think they're still like, what? And they, my mom's an artist who paints and has done printmaking and photography and she does a lot of music and all sorts of things. And my dad always had some like job that I never fully knew what it was. I still don't know. You know, he, he worked in, in packaging and promotional products and he was, I don't know, like wore a suit and went to a place. But then really, you know, he, I mean, not really, but Additionally, he was also always writing and, you know, he's always like, okay, here's my idea for a screenplay. Here's my idea for a novel. So I feel like I grew up in a very creative environment. And did you get a lot of encouragement with that? Yeah. Yes. They're the worst. They're like, oh, yes, write more novels. That's great. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> when I did my uh, MFA in creative writing, I had you know, especially that first year, I had a lot of conversations with people who are like, wow, my parents are so mad that I'm here and they don't understand why I'm in graduate school for fiction writing or poetry or whatever. And I would have to say, I don't know, my parents were really supportive, which is, you know, so not cool. <laughs> well, it's hard to be a tortured writer, right? Yeah, a tortured yeah. artist when your parents are like, yes, Yes. Like, well, you're doing great, sweetie. We love everything you do. And I'm like, Let stop us know it. it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're ruining my my cred around here. <laughs> totally. They'll listen to this podcast a hundred times. They'll send it to their friends. They're so supportive. God. <clears throat> leave me alone. <laughs> Tell me a little more about growing up in the suburbs of Chicago. Like, it sounds like you had, we, we had very similar their upbringings in the outskirts of a large city. It was all like super pastoral and very like very suburban and all the houses on the street. And mm -hmm. you know, there were activities in, you know, suburban high school, not the breakfast club, but like the good high school. Mm, kind of the breakfast club. Kind of the breakfast Actually, club. Like a lot of the John Hughes movies were were shot 
literally, you know, in the next town over, which was like a little on the nose for being a 90s teenager. <laughs> You're just like, wow, I'm very centered in today's culture. <laughs> Extremely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you know, I think it was like, I feel like I had the experience that a lot of, I think, probably suburban kids have, which is as a kid, I mean, it's so funny to go, my parents still live in the same house that I grew up in. And until pandemic times, so I used to take my kids back there a lot, like sort of every season almost. And it's funny to see it through my kids' eyes because they live in this super adorable house, like on a ravine. And there's this sort of like wooded area to kind of wander through. And they're walking distance from Lake Michigan. And it's really lovely. And, and as a kid, you know, I just, it's just where I was. And it was lovely. And there's a lot of like, you know, wandering outside and probably not as much wandering outside as my parents had in mind when they moved to the suburbs. Actually, what I remember is a lot of my mom being like, put down the book and go play outside and being like, ew, why? (laughs) (laughs) Why are you doing this to me? Yeah, very sweet. And then, you know, as soon as I was a teenager, just, you know, sort of like get me out of this total hellhole. Even though, you know, I went to this high school that was like, we love the arts. What do you want to do? Do you want to write a play and then I was the assistant editor of the literary magazine and I looked through it recently and was like this is ridiculous I fully wrote half of the things in it and you know and at the time I was like this is such fascist bullshit (laughs) like couldn't have been lovelier yeah and then I you know as soon as it was time for college I moved away and haven't lived there since but now I have a new appreciation for it visiting it you know it's quite lovely I mean also now when I go back it's funny because my kids are such Brooklyn kids and we go back and they're like everyone here is white this is really weird which is something that I did not clock as a kid at all you know um it is weird it's um it is you know my kids I, I talk about this a lot my kids are very unfazed by just about everything that slides yeah. across their field of vision and that's that's an amazing quality to have when you live in a really big, really diverse, um, really economically diverse in a lot of cases too, yeah. kind of city like New York, whether you, in fact, no matter what borough you live in, really. It's, they're also incredibly unfazed by the things that blew my mind. When I was <laughs> right, right, um, right. And that kind of bothers me. Right. So it's like, there's a new Lego in the mail and they're always like, well, of course there's a new Lego set to build in the mail. Let's build it. <laughs> you know? right, right. Um, and that's the kind of yeah. thing that drives me crazy. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's going to sit there for 48 hours. I'm going to make you stare at it. Until, in my day. Yeah. Until you get the sign that it's okay to build it. You little twerps. Well, and you, wow, you sound fun. Um, <laughs> Great dad, your kids by the are, way. Your kids are Manhattan kids, which I slightly feel like my kids are, I say they're real New Yorkers, but they're Brooklyn kids. And and my neighborhood in Brooklyn's really quiet. So even them, I feel like when I take them into Manhattan, they're like a little bit slightly like hicks. Like they don't fully know how to like walk down the street. And they're like looking like, at the buildings. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, gosh, look at all these people. <laughs> You're like, you can, if you walk outside and make a left, you can see that from the street. You <laughs> right, know, right. Those buildings. But it's across the. Yeah. You know. In the fair. Yeah. In the farm. Right. My kids tend to, um, I mean, we live in what I call a suburban Manhattan. So it's like, it is a bit quieter, but it's not, it's not, it's definitely not Brownstone Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm in like house Brooklyn. Like I'm like further out past Brownstone Brooklyn. You've probably never been this far. We looked at a house once in Ditmas Park. Um, Oh yeah. That's where I live. I mean, not in a house. I mean, in a house, but. 
Totally. We looked at a, <laughs> we looked at a house. Sorry, my son is on the on the terrace and he's um making I'm faces at me and, and spitting. I love see this is, this is doing this in a pandemic. Like you get we're getting life right here in the middle of it. We're all here together all That's the time. It. Every it's single great. minute. It's yeah. So great. Anyway, yeah, the like real Dimmis Park is super amazing and strange. It's like this neighborhood full of mansions plopped into part of Brooklyn. It's just like, why is this here? How did this get here? Yeah, it's, you know, exploring other parts of the city is something I try to do with my kids. So I don't think I do it quite enough, or at least as much as I could, yeah. because there are so many cool and interesting things that are embedded in the city, which probably is one of the things that sort of, that subconsciously draws people here. I think a lot of people are into the notion of Manhattan and bright lights, big city and all that. But the minute yeah. you step outside of that, there are, there are gems just hidden everywhere. Dead Horse Bay and Floyd Bennett Field in Brooklyn. God, I love Dead Horse Bay. Yeah, and if yeah. you go out, it's like, it's really cool. Uh, you know, Queens yeah. has its pockets. You know, and Queens is the most diverse borough in the city, right? So you go there and you yeah, get everything. Yeah. I mean, it kind of doesn't matter what you're looking for. And you go to Flushing and you eat Chinese food. And it's like the best, it's like the best day of your life. And then you go home. <laughs> and then you go home. Well, and I think maybe like I feel like that kind of thing gets me excited about having bigger kids in the city. Like my kids are, our, our kids the same age. Mine are nine and eleven. And my youngest is a little younger, younger, but I think our okay. um, our oldest's are the same. Yeah, like, will turn eleven next month. Yeah, so it's like I feel like they're just getting to an age that's a little more fun to explore the city. You know, like when they're little and they still sort of I don't know won't eat anything that's not a cracker and <laughs> won't walk very far. You're like, wow, this is real bummer with you guys right now. Um, but I feel like we're about to break through that into, and especially just in pandemic times, it's been so like life has been so quiet and internal. And my daughter was like, wow, it'd be really fun to get on the train and go somewhere and see something. <laughs> You know, with in those words, right? She has nothing yeah, specific yeah. in mind. No, 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 literally no. anything. Yeah. Right. Just anything that's not your face, mom. <laughs> We're also past the complaining about walking. Yes, uh, yeah. So great. For a while, like my son is just over that hump now. He's yeah. seven in May. Oh yeah. And so he's like just on the other side of that. So mm -hmm. like for us to walk for the nineteen twenty school year, which was abruptly halted, we had it in like a uh a, a like a dance class at Alvin Ailey that he like he loved and so we would walk to the train and take the train down and walk from the train to the thing and yeah. he did his dance class and we'd do it the other way and we would and I wouldn't get any complaints and it was <laughs> it was just marvelous we would like play I spy on the way and talk and it was great <clears throat> I also remember having kids um you know at the, at the like okay so being in uh I mean I don't really think of myself as a New Yorker but living <laughs> in New York I mean I've been here for 15 years or whatever, but like living in New York and have and not having kids, I remember seeing sort of big kids in strollers and feeling real judgy about it and being like, why that child can walk? What's wrong with these helicopter parents? And then as soon as I had, you know, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, I was like, oh, please stay in the stroller, please. Because otherwise we're stuck to like a one square block radius. <laughs> and uh, I need my life to be a little bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay if it's Brooklyn <laughs> Provincial, it just needs to be slightly bigger the when we went to we went to disneyland probably two summers ago three three summers mm -hmm. ago at this point daughter was about eight my son was let's say four and a half 
And we walked in and I was like, uh, yes, one double stroller. Please. <laughs> yeah, everybody yeah. sit. We're going. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I am not listening to you four that's hours right. from now complaining about being at Disneyland. Like, that's not okay. That's right. But, that's uh, right. It's like you're setting yourself up to to not get into that horrible parenting moment where you're like, yeah, it's Disneyland. Just enjoy it. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, let's prophylactically parent here. <laughs> so wait, so when did you, when did you move to New York? After your MFA? This is a really hard question to answer, actually. Because so I moved here after college, my then boyfriend, and we were like, I don't know, let's go to New York City. Why not? Um, so we moved here and we were here for a couple months. And this was in the summer of 2001. Uh, and my. I see where this is going. Yes. Boyfriend. And we had temp jobs. And my. A boyfriend had a temp job at um, this place called the World Trade Center. Stop. And I know, yeah. God, it's like so bizarre that it's it's like so baldly metaphorical. Like his temp job was working for Silverstone or Silverstein, whoever the guy is who had like just bought the buildings. And he was literally just photocopying the leases for the World Trade Towers. It's so bizarre. Oh so anyway, God. so he was there on September 11th. So that was not great. So in conclusion, that was not great. And then, you know, about a month later, we we're like, oh, my God, we got to get out of this place. It was just such a weird time in the city. And, you know, we'd both lost our temp jobs. We didn't have any money. We we're like, oh, my God, what is happening? So then we went back to the Midwest. I went to graduate school at the University of Minnesota. And then we were like, OK, 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 let's try that again. And by then, we were married. And we we're like, all right. We're going to try this again. And I remember, actually, I was looking through some old journals recently, and I had written in a journal, it would be cool to try living in New York City for a, for like a year. I've always wanted to try that for maybe a year. So this was 15 years ago at this point. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, wait, what happened? <laughs> like, what? Here I am. And we ended up living in, in Park Slope. Brooklyn, just because that was like where we found an apartment and, and sort of like not really knowing anything or having thought very clearly about New York City. Uh, we were sort of like, this looks kind of like cool. Like the Brooklyn that I've seen on TV seems good. That's wild. Um, and so did you start, did you get a kind of writing job out of the gate? How did you, how did you get yourself I'm into the into the literary intelligentsia of New York. Oh, man. You, I'm, you super, reside. Yeah. I'm not there at all. As I've said, I'm in my living room with my child <laughs> spitting at me. Yeah, so um, is everyone else. You're still there. <laughs> That's true. Well, right. Like, I, I just sort of moved here with this vague idea of, I, I guess writers live here, and I think the creative people live here, and this seems like a good idea. Right, with an MFA, which sort of renders you both totally overqualified for anything and underqualified for anything. I was like, hey, heads up. I'm 24. I have no job experience at all, but a master's degree. <laughs> you know, can I be your secretary? People were like, uh, no. <laughs> Goodbye. So actually, my first job was I found a job off Craigslist back in the day that was 
It was actually like the most fun job I've probably ever had. Ghostwriting a book of like Jewish humor. <laughs> Stop, really? Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I know. I know. And it was like something I had no business of doing. I don't really, I'm not a humor writer and I never had really studied humor writing. They were just like, your cover letter seemed kind of funny. And I was like, I can be kind of funny, I think. So that was a really fun, maybe like six months. It was these guys who had this play, this sort of like hit off Broadway play called Jutopia. I don't know if you ever saw it. Oh, I mean, come on. Jeff, I, yeah. I hope so. <laughs> okay. It was not unfunny. No one can see me making the face I'm making at you now. That's the problem. <laughs> like, I, need to, I need to be louder over Speaking here. Of, yes, I, of yeah, I saw it. <laughs> of course, I, I saw it three times. Anyway, so those guys got a book deal. And then they were like, hold up. We don't know how to write a book. And I was like, literally the only thing I know how to do is write a book. I just went to book writing school. Let's figure this out. So that was a super fun job that I had. And and then I applied to sort of a million kind of writing related jobs uh, in like a very scattershot way. I actually, I, I got a second interview at a, a job for, um, to be an assistant to a literary agent. And he, I was so angry at the time. And I think about this all the time because he was so right. He sort of sat me down. He was like, listen, I could give you this job and you would do a good job at it and that would be fine. But you don't want to be a literary agent. You want to be a writer. I was like, how dare you, sir? I want to pay my rent. But he was 100% right. I mean, now I feel like, of course, that was so obvious. But at the time, I was like, I don't care. I just need any job. And so all through this time, are you, you're just kind of journaling and writing and trying to keep keep it going yeah. do something? Yeah, good question. I don't know if I, yeah, I think I had started writing. All right. So in graduate school, I wrote what I thought would be my first book, which was a collection of short stories. And then I sort of emerged from that and sent it to a couple agents. And they all said what every agent says about a collection of short stories, unless you've had literally a story in the New Yorker, which is like, thank you so much. Let me know when you have a novel. So I was like, okay, got it. I'll just write a novel then. Fine. So yeah, so I was I was working on my first novel sort of in the mornings before work um, while I was working this other job. Well, I eventually got a web editing job at the late great iVillage.com, which was this website where I feel like maybe every woman who works in, in New York City media worked there at some point. <laughs> You're 100% right. They eventually got bought by NBC, right? They did. Yeah, I yeah. was there for that. And I was like, is this exciting? No, this is horrible. <laughs> That's where my friend Stephen Gold came from. Stephen Gold was hey. one of the guys who did like advertising operations at iVillage. And when NBC bought it, he moved over to NBC. What? That's so funny. So we were there at the same time because that was when I was like, I can't work with TV people. They're too intense. Like I couldn't <laughs> handle it. And then, yeah. And then from then on, I was web editing, which is something that I didn't, I just don't think I knew it was a job, but it has turned out to be a great job for me. I, I'm still an editor and yeah, it's, I, I, I guess getting an MFA, I always thought I would teach and then ended up in New York City and realized that I actually can't afford to teach. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. No, so that's like maybe someday. So, but editing, I feel like it's, for me, it's just a great fit. I feel like it makes me a better writer. I feel like being a writer makes me a better editor and I get to write for work a lot. 
And it's so much less exhausting than teaching. Wow, <laughs> teaching's teaching, really hard. I every time, you know, in a world where I send my kids, well, let me let me say it slightly differently. What I realized in this world where I don't send my kids to school is how much water teachers are actually carrying for me <laughs> in general as a parent. Oh, and yeah. how generally on like my stepmother was a teacher for 25 wow. years in the New York City school system. So I kind of knew that growing up. But what I don't know that I realized was when I got to the age where my own kids would be going to school, that school would be so instrumental as a third parent effectively. Totally, um, and yeah. this is what I feel like. I mean, I read an article in the Times Magazine this weekend, which was all about school. And they were just, they were talking what's been floating in my mind, which is if you're not yeah. in a position where you don't have to go to an office or to a job now, what's going to happen yeah. to your children? Oh, completely. Uh, yeah. home, like it's just, you're going to fall a mile behind. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think about the teachers' kids too. Like, yeah, all these teachers who are, are teaching and are required to be in the building, but then they have kids who are not in school right now. And yeah, it's such a mess. Yeah. I feel very, oh, that's another, I feel so lucky that I lucked into, I, I totally just stumbled into web editing as a profession. And so now I edit for a publication on a website that's super easy to do from home. And I'm very lucky in that the company I work for is incredibly, um, they've been incredibly understanding and supportive. And they're like, parents out there, what do you need? Everybody, what do you need? They're really great. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. You've worked as a writer and an editor long enough that it's good that yeah. you've landed at a place that can afford you that kind of flexibility. Oh my God, totally. I mean, working in, in media right now is a very scary prospect. You're always hearing about public sure is. Yes. I've worked at two different magazines that folded. It wasn't my fault, I don't think, either time. <laughs> but I was there. But yeah. you are you are right? the, the, the missing link. The common factor between the <laughs> yeah. two of them. So let's not fully take That's our hands great. off that crashing yeah. trolley. One of the things that so i have i have not read your first book i have read your second book oh, um, nobody read my first book so you're perfect i'm right i'm right in the thing but one you're, of the things <laughs> there's a lot of and i'm gonna get like probably way too literary over my skis here but there's like a lot of beauty and a lot of whimsy in the way you write which is one of the things that i really i actually love about i'm, I'm and as i said before we started i'm expecting your book in the mail your most recent book in the mail it's caught in our in our sad postal system right now. I pre-ordered it uh, two weeks ago, so it really should be at my door already. Um, but one of the things- Should be in New York City, where it probably would have- Where things oh, no. arrive, yes. <laughs> Although my publishers are in Pasadena, so it's very, but you know, it doesn't come from the publishers. Probably. Totally, and hopefully they're not all on right. fire because of the fires. I have a whole two or three shelves, I think, full of Yankee pot roast writer novels. Oh. And that's Amazing. like, I always, every time I hear about a proud dad, totally. And I'm always like, you know, again, just because I'm the common link, I'm like, I am responsible for your success. No, it's so true. I, I need it's to keep true. it going in that capacity. That's correct. I feel like Yankee Paros was like such a, um, I feel like that was part of like a magical moment of the internet. Like, I know that makes me sound a hundred years old. No. Like it was wonderful then. <laughs> it's so funny you say that. So, okay. So here's my, my other podcast idea, which I'm actually okay. in the process of formulating right now. And you're going to have to be on that one too. And we'll have a totally okay. conversation. Fine. But I totally feel like, so you read, did you read the book, um, Meet Me in the Bathroom? Did you read that book? 
it's hard to call it a book. It's a it's like a basically an oral history of the alt rock scene in the nineties and two thousands in New York. Oh, okay. um, and it's written by a spin editor um, whose name escapes me right now. Lizzie Goodman, I think is her name. But it's it's like it's just an oral retelling. So it's basically just people talking about what it was like to live here and be a musician at that time. Wait, someone was just talking about this. Okay. And so my podcast idea is to do that, but with the early 2000s, oh <laughs> like web literary scene. Yes. And yes. all of the writers that emerged from that and just sit and talk to them about how awesome and unique it was to be writing and doing that at that time. Like, I feel so privileged to know all these amazing people. When was the last time we talked? Probably a, a, over a year ago, probably. But right, I, know, right. I can always know that I can reach out to you. And there's right. like a shared bond because totally, we were yeah. in that time together. It's like we went to camp together, but exactly it was, it was like. and early 2000s internet camp. That's so funny. We just had a, a conversation like this at work where, God, no, I can't remember like who was some, some, some blog had like re reposted something that we did and we we're all really excited because we we're like, oh, we remember this guy from the, the early aughts. He's like a famous blogger. And I was just like, oh my God, what if... Like the next step would be if Deuce and Finslippy reblogged this, and then if like Maud Newton wrote about it, we'd just be like, "Whoa!" <laughs> and Maud herself is like that. She's like wildly successful. She's writing. Yes. If you follow her on Twitter, she's <laughs> she's like basically live tweeting the process of writing a book about her family's genealogy. It's it's and so I'm I'm so privileged. Like that that's the good part of Twitter that I try to focus on, not the, yeah, yeah. the part of Twitter that's slowly sucking my sanity straight out the of the end of democracy. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> it's whatever. Look, it's been a nice ride. But remember when we all just had those blogs and I was trying to tell I was trying to explain to my kids, I was like, and you would bookmark your favorite blogs and you would check them every day. They were like, Why? I don't the same ones. So what? just talking about how you how you <laughs> wrote like half of your literary magazine in high school at the beginning of Yankee Pot Roast. I want to say for like the first, let's call it six months, I would say we maybe got one legit submission a week that was publishable. The rest of them we were writing under pen names. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then ultimately we got like a following. But the first six months of Yankee Pot Roast oh, is funny. Josh, Nick, and me in various forms of under different pen names, or we would IM each other. Like, remember, we would IM each other. We would IM each other at the end of the day and be like, all right, what are we publishing tomorrow? And we'd, we'd hash it out over IM like that. That's so funny. Yankee Paros was one, it was one of those sites that I was like, someday I'm going to get a piece on Yankee Paros. So I'm going to crack it. Then when I did, I was like, yes, Boom. I'm owning the internet right now. It was one of my daily reads. Yeah, we had a lot of fun with that. It was like every like everything else that Josh, Nick, and I do. It's like we just got to the point where we probably could have been pretty successful at it, and we were just like, yeah. eh, like we're exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> eh, we're yeah. all getting married, like uh, you know, like it was just like things. You know? Value our life and relationships. <laughs> did you guys do a book? Sorry, we did a book. We did a book. We actually were contracted to do two books. We did one book. Um, we had a feature on the website called Birthday Cards to Celebrities. Where oh we wrote a mock birthday card to a celebrity every day. And Penguin called us and said, we want you to make a book out of that. And it was like a boutique humor imprint there. And so we did it and we published it. I'm sorry, we, we finished it and we collected our advance and everything, which it's so funny too. Like, 
I've talked, I have a friend still who's, who's, he was the agent who signed the second book underrated and we still talk. And he told us, he's like, it's funny. If you guys had been there 10 years ago, they would have seen your site or whatever it is you wrote your zine, I guess at the time. And they would have been yeah. like, throw 150 grand at them and make them write a book. And I'm like, well, you only gave us like 10. So <laughs> yeah. why would you even tell me that? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Like where's the bank guys? Yeah. yeah. So the birthday cards to celebrity, the imprint, what wound up happening was the imprint folded before the book got published. Um, so the guy who ran it went wow. to go run a winery in Napa Valley and then the whole thing collapsed. Amazing. Yeah. So that's our little, weird publishing oh story. Um, yeah, publishing is, you know, God bless it. Such a mess. But that happened to me with my first book, the imprint that published it went under and it never came out and paid for back. And, you know. Like it's happening a lot then, right? Yeah. Yeah. They'd be like, here, you want an imprint? Do whatever you want. Okay, now it's it's gone. Yeah, no funding. Sorry. So what got you going more than, I, I know, did you, so I did this a little bit uh, for a while, which was like any literary event that I heard about, any reading that I heard about, in yeah. public, where I could possibly meet people that I could talk to about writing, I went to. Um, yeah, and it was yeah. all those places on the Lower East Side, like pianos yeah. Um, yeah. and Mo Pickens, Happy Endings, all those yeah, places where yeah. people would do readings. Did you like go to as many of those as you possibly could? I, I totally did. I mean, I, um, you know, I moved here like with my college boyfriend, but we didn't know anybody here really. So, and I was like, I'm going to meet the writers. Where are the writers? I have to find them, which is now so funny to me because now I'm like, oh, all my friends are writers. <laughs> like, how can I find it normal and bounce some ideas off them? I want to know what normals think, but, but it felt so like urgent and, and impossible. You know, I was like, why would the writers want to be friends with me? I'm from the Midwest. <laughs> like, I don't know. You had to have a subscription to Time Out. Remember when you had to pay for Time Out in New York? I could go through the list and just like circle the ones you would go to. Like, that looks literary. <laughs> okay. Right. And, you know, not having kids, just having so much freedom, being like, oh, you know, I'm done with work. I went and got a cocktail with my coworkers. Now, where do I go? What reading is starting at 7 p.m.? Like, what a, what a golden time. But yeah, I went to the Happy Endings reading series. I feel like every week for a while, I, I think I was a super fan. And I remember like nervously thinking like, if I was ever going to do this reading series, what would my challenge be? Did you go to that one? Everyone had to do a challenge. which was, like, I did. Yeah. And there was a lot about, um, there was like a lot of anxiety or like weird nerve stuff about, okay, am I going to introduce myself to the host? Or Right, right. Should I go talk to the guy who runs this thing and see if I can be in it? So annoying because you couldn't even just like be like, I'll low key, you know, follow them on Twitter and stalk them for a while. It's like you had to really well, talk to them. And the funny part is now, basically, I make my entire living by talking to anyone who will talk to me. So it's, it feels like quaint to me that I would think to myself, should I, should I go? Should I go talk to him? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think it's also just like, for me, it's like being in my early 20s and being just like kind of shy and being like, oh my God, now I have to talk to somebody and 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 that like not really exactly having anything to say to them, like not being like, I have a book coming out. Can I read from your, just being like, I just want you to like me. They'd be like, That's okay. Right. And the oh, thing is, yeah. it's always so nice, you know, like. You well, know. It was a really nice community of really interesting people, a lot of whom I still talk to, even if they weren't New York-based. I have a long Twitter DM thread that I do with a bunch of, of writers that I was in touch with then that we still 
we still kind of are in touch. And, and it's really, it's fun to see those guys now because we're all so different than we were then, but we're all so the same. <laughs> so we all fall yeah. back on the same stuff all the time. Let's talk about your new book while we're okay. here. So what? I'm curious if I made this connection properly. Yeah. So you work in lower Manhattan. I used to. Yeah. Um, my last job. So for almost a year now, I'm coming up on my one year anniversary. Um, I've been working at Medium and their offices are in Union Square. Got it. Um, so you're now, further uptown. But before that, I was working in for JSTOR and in lower Manhattan for three and years, so which is your a weird neighborhood. Your Instagram was always yeah. these phenomenal pictures of like <laughs> your walks at lunch and like all the crazy stuff you found there. I gotta get out of here. Okay, <laughs> I gotta take a walk. I was like, very, my walk is really important. But yeah, it's like lower Manhattan is incredible. There's so much history everywhere. And so is that where you first kind of hatched the idea for Unseen City on that lunchtime, on those lunchtime escapades? That is such a good question. And it is not. I actually wrote the first draft. Oh my God, this book. I started writing it in 2013. And it's oh, okay. It's been a long haul. But so the first draft was written before I went back to work full time. I was like freelancing and I was home with my kids. And, and it was almost aspirational because a lot of the, it's like a very New York City book. And there's a lot of characters walking around in the book. And I feel like at first, in the first draft, it was almost aspirational. It was like, what if somebody could just go for a really long walk and just experience the city? And and I started sort of a, a main focus in the book is a haunted house. And I started writing it like in 2013, I guess my then husband and I were looking, we were like, can we buy a house? People have houses in Brooklyn. And then, you know, we looked for about two seconds and realized like, okay, the other people who work in media in Brooklyn and own houses are not, um, they they have something else happening that we don't have. This, our strange was like places that are literally on fire or were <laughs> on fire. We were like, huh. Okay. Yes. Anyway, but so we looked whole Brooklyn houses are like CEOs of agencies and stuff. Yes. <laughs> That's correct. Correct. Yeah. Your other guests on your podcast, which you should introduce me to them if they're, <laughs> I don't know, if they want to be a patron or what's it called? I think a patron is like a nice name for it. Anyway. Well, let's say patron of the arts. Yes. Patron of the arts. <laughs> and or if they're single, we'll talk. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're like, this is not actually a thing that can happen. But we were looking at all these really raw, really wild spaces that felt like it's like being in a lot of unstaged houses and like foreclosures. It just made me think so much about the way people shape their spaces and the way the spaces shape a person and what it means to move into a house or a neighborhood. And I think I had, we didn't end up buying a house, but that process sort of made me think about haunted houses a lot and how sort of gentrification is a kind of ghost story in a way. So the first draft was written, yeah, very much in Brooklyn. 
then the, the, I did a really, really big revision while I was working in lower Manhattan. So once I had gone back to work, then, you know, my agent, I switched agents and I had a new agent who got back to me with, she did like the Lord's work with this book. She really did such an intense, went through a couple of really intense revisions with me to the point that when my editor acquired it, she was like, well, good, looks good to me. <laughs> we were both like, wait, sorry, what? <laughs> so much, but, yeah, um, that always happens, right? That's yeah, definitely yeah. the experience of writing a book. Yeah. That's right. She was in there with me. So I did a, a really significant revision while I was working in lower Manhattan. So I think a lot of a lot of that did work its way in. And a lot of because there is actually a scene in the book set in the 1860s, but set in lower Manhattan. And I did a lot of thinking about, you know, what what did what was the city like in the 1860s? You know, it was it was focused in that part of Manhattan. But it was, you know, I don't know, so, so different than obviously, you know, there were like wild pigs running through the street. And like, I, I can't remember. Like, I read a book like reasonably recently where they were talking about how, you know, it wasn't just like that type of thing where, and there were basically, you know, the roads were dirt. So right, and there right. were no lanes or anything. So you get run down by, a, and also like lots of horse poop. Um, just right. and carcass. But you could also go to like the shoal off where the battery is now, and just like harvest oysters and yeah. chuck them and eat them. Right? right, like it was just such a different life than what we experience in that now, especially given how high it is, um, tall. I mean, right. but yeah, the other thing that too, but tall is what I was. <laughs> Look, Manhattan's your about tall. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny to me. I feel like being from the Midwest, my. I remember the first time I, I came to New York City was to visit a friend in college and, and just being like, wow, everything's so old. Because in, I mean, Chicago, you know, I don't know, everything sort of, all the buildings you see are dated from essentially the the great Chicago fires. Nothing is that old, really. Um, and then you're in Manhattan and you just feel so much of the history of, especially in lower Manhattan, like, you know, parts of it are so Dutch and like, especially like, down there. Yeah. So especially weird. down there. Yeah. And when you wander through the streets, you really feel like it's not gridded either. So there's, there was no city planning, yeah. obviously. So right. it's, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> there are times that when I go down there, I have to actually, like, if I, I need to know where I'm going and I have to map it out because otherwise I, like you get, you start walking one way and then you realize you're, you know, you're all the way west of where you wanted to be because you got turned around by making a wrong turn. But I, yeah, I do love it down there. Yeah, I feel like I used to always see tour groups um, on my lunch break walks down there, you know, following a person with an umbrella. And I just wanted to grab them and be like, this is a great place to wander around. Like if you don't have to get anywhere on time, you just wander. And also because you're not going to get lost because it's not that big. You're just going to hit water if you go too far. So like just wander. It's a great place for just wandering. But. So did you ever, did you ever find anything that, I mean, given that there's the haunted house element, did you ever find anything that truly creeped you out walking around down there? Cause I know there's a lot of like cemeteries and all kinds of crazy stuff down there. I mean, that's a good question. So the haunted house in the book is, is in Brooklyn, which is, and it's, I feel like the, the sort of most eerie and haunting part of it was actually just doing the research of the real history. Like I, I, I set out not meaning to write about race because who wants to 
right about race. I was like, this is a bad, like I, I, there are so many ways to do this so wrong and be so offensive. And I really don't want to do that. But I, I realized just doing any amount of history, researching any amount of history about New York City or America, you can't get very far without getting to a story about race and racism and sort of the original sins of this country. And I ended up writing about this neighborhood in Brooklyn that was a, it was a, this like Weeksville. Have you ever been there? It's, it's really cool. Yeah. It's pretty far out in Brooklyn, but it used to be this sort of utopian farming community when Brooklyn was all farms, like in the 1860s. But it started before the Civil War. And it was free landowning African Americans who started this. It was its own village. And then it sort of got subsumed by Brooklyn. And then it was recently, I mean, in the 1960s, rediscovered um, sort of a amateur archaeologist was like, wait a minute, I feel like this thing I'm reading about was probably right here and flew over Brooklyn, which I guess was a thing you could do in the 1960s with your friend with a prop plane and and found these houses, these farmhouses that were off the city grid. And that's how they realized that they were had been part of this community. And like that idea of just the different layers of the city and the different things that used to be here and have gotten subsumed. And then there's stories like that all over Manhattan and Brooklyn and all over the city, just all the different layers of the history that some of them were so good at remembering and some of them were really not and just cover them up and forget all about them. So yeah, just learning about a little bit of New York City history, I feel like was was very sort of haunting. And I feel like now I I walk around and look at buildings in a totally different way. You know, if I see a building that looks, you know, an old farmhouse and a weird block, I'm like, hmm, what's your story? That's a really interesting perspective. I almost always, we go to the, the Botanical Gardens has that train show mm. every holiday season, the Bronx Botanical Gardens. And those houses are almost like a lot of those structures are you know, house built in 18, whatever, demolished 18, whatever. Um, So like the, the only record of that structure is at this train show that is crazy. And so you wind up, you know, there are occasions that, I mean, I don't take, you you take pictures, you walk by, you're like, this address rings a bell. Like I'm at West or East 84th street. Like what used to be here? And you look through the botanical gardens pictures and you're like, oh my God, this like, insanely rich person lived here however many years ago yeah demolished or burned down or something and now it's like a standard high-rise right well one of another thing i wrote about in the book was the civil war draft riots which i don't know if you know about them but in that in 1863 it, it was this i mean it's been so it's so crazy to me that my book is coming out now this summer has been such an interesting echo of the 1860s really in New York City because there was this um there was all this civil unrest and all this and an epidemic of smallpox and all the all these things kind of came together to sort of make New York City collectively lose its goddamn mind and have this huge riot that had all this racist violence and really transformed the city and one of the things that happened was an orphan asylum for black children was burned down and all the orphans were saved, but it was burned down like probably 
by the police force. Like it's so fucked up. And now it's like kind of up by you. I think it's in the 50s or 60s. I don't know. Is that where you are in Manhattan? I don't know how far up you guys get up there in Manhattan. A little further north, but quite not, not, not all the way up. Yeah. <laughs> there's like, you know, there's no plaque. There's no remembrance of this thing that happened. It's, it's right by like the American girl place. You know what I mean? There's just yeah, like, totally. sort of, you know, crappy midtown New York now or midtown Manhattan. And, but there's, there's stories like that all over the city and and, and then it's crazy what we choose to remember right which is like right. i was walking to pick my kid up from camp in riverside park and i walked by brownstone and it's like humphrey bogart was born here right, right. <laughs> and you're like okay that's really great to know. yeah thrilling right those guys I mean, are like so i like casablanca yeah sure. when they're like so and so lived here for six months in 1950 <laughs> you're like okay yeah and there's 90 cool. bars that claim to be the oldest operating establishment in the city also Right. That's true. Someone's going to have to get to the bottom of that. It's not me, but someone. Somebody. Dylan Thomas is like haunting all of them. And <laughs> it's very complicated. Y'all in Manhattan to manage. Yeah. I mean, look, it's a burden. Yes, but we don't like to complain <laughs> about it. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> museum that we travel to get to. but The Museum of Natural History is... And it's unfortunate because they've, they've closed and remodeled my favorite part of it, which was the gem room. No. That is my, yeah, it has this like really cool 70s vibe in there. And I'm sort of- super, yeah, it's like all carpeted. It was 100%. So they're, they're redesigning it. Um, I don't even know if it's open oh, yet again, but uh, it's that's one of my favorite places in the city. Yeah. Uh, the Museum of Natural History is. That's right. It's um, a very thing to say though. Just saying. <laughs> it's a very Upper West Side thing to say. All right, I'm going to end on a big bang question. That's what I try to do. Right. So I have a big bang question for you. And I promise you oh. that it is not math. As per our agreement prior to That's the recording, it is not a math-related question. But you so, said before, I feel anxious. Um, give me, I know it would be impossible for you to pick your favorite book, but if you had to sit down and say who your favorite author is, who is your favorite author? How dare you ask me that? I'm going to pin you down. Question. Well, okay. The problem is I'm, I have like probably the most predictable answer, but I think the, the writer that I, I have consistently loved for the longest and that I turn back to the most is Virginia Woolf. And I know that everyone says that, but. You know when you like go to a, a concert and you're like, this is my favorite musician and I'm probably their biggest fan. And then you look around and everyone's singing along and you're like, sorry, no, no, no. I understand more than these other people. Like I slightly feel that way about Virginia Woolf, but I know everyone does. But she's the, you know, ever since I first read her, I feel like she's the one who everything she wrote I know she was like a problematic person in many ways. Okay. But like everything, she, she, I, 
I love her range as a writer. Like she was very, very funny in some books. She's very profound in some books. She was always experimenting. Every book she wrote was totally different, which as a young writer, I was like, oh, amazing. That's what I want to do is write every book totally differently and not realizing that that is the ultimate nightmare of publishers and marketing departments. And that's why Virginia Woolf had her own press uh, where she published her. But it's fine. Yeah, but she's like the one I go back to again and again. And in in my book, Unseen City, the um the main contemporary character, there's like this contemporary story and this historical story. And the main contemporary character is a librarian and a bookish lady, because I like to use my imagination. Right what you know, the, Amy. Uh, what you know what I mean? <laughs> Look, actually my my daughter was reading through the beginning of the book and she was like, This character is totally different than you because she has a cat. And I'm allergic to cats, so I could never have a cat. So clearly, I really use my imagination. But the cat's name is Virginia Woolf. Um, so my daughter was trolling me, like, you're so predictable. You think you're so funny, which is true. I do. But um, <laughs> that's what my answer would be, I think. That's a good answer. I think that's, I, I'm okay with that answer. I would Thank have challenged you. you. <laughs> I, would, I would have challenged you if you picked someone completely unacceptable. Like if you were basically like, um, David. well, now you have a spotlight on you also. But if you were, um, if you were like my favorite author is like Jim Davis, the guy who writes the Garfield comic, I would have been like, that's, that's, like, that's not choice and a genius of our time. There's a lot of contemporary writers who I really, really admire. And I feel like there's a lot of actually really exciting stuff happening in, in publishing right now. And not to be too much of like a, a, a company hack, but Red Hen Press, which is the publishing house that's putting out my book. Honestly, every book that they have on their roster, I feel like is amazing. Everything I've read is beautiful and inspiring in some way. And they have like a pretty diverse group of writers and, and writers who really sort of push the envelope in terms of form and sort of hitting that spot between commercial fiction and literary fiction that I feel like is my favorite place to be. But a lot of uh, big five publishing is sort of like, wait, what is this? It has to be one or the other. So, you know, I, I find that I, for all of the big, and I get why the big five sort of retreated to things that are like reliably money-making political books and commercial fiction. But you feel like with all the money that they do make, that they would find the right places to take the right chances, the way that yeah. film studios occasionally do. Right. Well, and I feel like, I mean, I don't know. I think that the secret is really nobody knows what works. And so you, and I know this as an editor myself, sometimes you just got to take a risk because sometimes you you think like this fills all the buckets and I know it's going to work. It's just like this other thing that just worked and it just doesn't work for whatever reason. And sometimes you kind of take a risk on something that's odd and, and weird and amazing in its own way. And I really do think that readers respond to when a writer is, is like doing the thing they're best at and the thing that they're most passionate about. And I think that that, I don't know, it's like, I'll read anything as long as it's the best thing that it can be, whatever it is. Yeah. And I think just sometimes there's like a weird book that everybody loves and the publishers are like, wait, Why? It's like nobody knows why it's it was just I mean, that's kind of okay it was good writing um I think you it's one of those things where you can tell the difference between someone who's writing for the purpose of being weird and someone who's writing authentically and it just kind of that's, turns out to be weird that's right um, yeah. 
and the one benefit of the pandemic is that I've I've been reading a lot more <laughs> than oh, I had been for the year prior. Yeah. So that's been, been Am I allowed to ask you? What have you been reading? Yeah. So I read um a book. <laughs> so I've re I've read a few different books. I read a book about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is that's real boring. Okay, <laughs> so nerdy, but it's the law that basically prevents you from suing Twitter uh, for defamation. You have to sue the person who defames you through Twitter. That that's basically created the modern internet as you know it. So that's been really cool. I'm right in the middle of the Three Body Problem, uh, the first book of the Three Body Problem, which is uh, like a sci-fi trilogy. Oh, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> yes. oh, the, the first body problem. First, and then the second. Gosh, no. now I'm getting excited about books. Have you read The City We Became by no. Anderson? Jeff, I feel very upset. I feel like you need to read this book. All right, you have it's, to send me the, email me the. the I will. It's, it's like science fiction, but also extremely New York City. And it's all, it's like the soul of each of the boroughs gets sort of incarnated into a physical body and then they all kind of get together. It's amazing. And I, I, I don't know like how it. I haven't even heard of that book. I feel like that's everything. <laughs> that checks all the boxes. Okay. Yeah. It's all, it's all of your things. <laughs> that's like everything I, I know. Yeah. And a sporadic bunch of other books. I, I'm reading a book about Miami Beach because I found it interesting. I'm I actually I'm rereading the Hitchhiker's Guide books, so I'm on book four again. So I'm I'm sort of working my way through those. And then a friend of mine's mom wrote a book, and I was like, I kind of want to hate read this, so I'm doing it. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Here's what's funny. I told her I'm like in my head this is like a 1980s sex thriller, and I'm not letting you convince me otherwise. But it's actually a book about like corporate crime or something like corporate. It's a corporate crime mystery book. But my friend's mom used all her entire family's name and like personal characteristics. <laughs> so I'm trying to pick everyone out. How satisfying. Yeah, it's pretty good. I'm pretty excited. Every time I pick it up, I'm like, I wonder what, what gem I'm going to discover now. I can't wait till you find the, the Jeff in there. <laughs> well, I wouldn't be in there. Fun. Fortunately for me, yes. No, I wouldn't be in there. The other day, my daughter had a friend over. Okay, so they're 11, and I have like a stack of my books because, you know, I'm sending them to people. And she picked it up and she looked at it and she said, You wrote this book. Do you feel really proud of yourself? I was like, Sweet baby angel. I just feel nerves and yeah. anxiety. We're Jewish around here. It's anxiety, <laughs> not pride. Yeah. I wish it were better. I'm sorry, but okay. Like, I like your spin. Just, just that I would look at it and be like, I'm so proud of myself. This You're like, the best that I feel about myself is ambivalence. Um, <laughs> I don't go beyond that. That's my ceiling. I'm not apologizing to people. And that's <laughs> win. Amazing. All right. Look, we're an hour and seven minutes into this. This was amazingly Stop. fun. Stop. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's like dinner time there in New York too. So your children are probably ready to eat each other, perhaps. I don't know. You just know because my son keeps coming in being like, when are you done? He doesn't even need anything. He just doesn't want me to be doing something else. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's an attention thing, um, which I love. It's like I I work East Coast hours out here, so... Um, I'm up like 5.30 in the morning and I, I I go into like a small side room here and I'm working. This morning, I just hear 
um, my kids practicing a song performance of I Just Can't Wait to Be King from The Lion King. And I'm like, what the hell are you guys doing at eight in the morning? And they're like, we're practicing the song. And I'm like, what song? Like, What, what performance is this for? What, what are you doing? I'm like, it's a damn pandemic, kids. Nobody needs to hear a song. Yeah, certainly not that one. You guys want to do something by Wilco or something, like get after it. But uh, Sounds adorable. Yeah, it's kind of cute. I, I make fun of my kids, but they're, they're doing their thing. They're doing their thing. I bet they make fun of you too. That's their dirty secret. I don't think it's much of a secret. <laughs> like you walk in on their school Zoom, they're like, oh, <laughs> so to like get a load of this guy. Like I'm walking out of the room and they're not even <laughs> waiting. All right, Amy, thank you so much. This was amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for letting me sneak in with all the like important CEOs you usually talk to. Thanks again to Amy Shern for joining me today. Her new novel, Unseen City, comes out on September 29th and is available for pre-order today. You can purchase it directly from Red Hen Press at redhenpress.org. Or if you're so inclined, please support your local independent bookseller by ordering online from bookshop.com. To play us out, inspired by the title of Amy's book, here's Luscious Jackson and City Song. Thanks, everyone. Keeps me fair. It sounds around me.